Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. This episode was a long time coming. Eric Voorhees is a good friend of mine and was the marketing director and chief operating officer at BitInstant going back since like 2012. And he was like one of the first people that I actually met in the space. And we told some crazy stories of how Roger Veer basically had to force Eric to work for me because I was so reluctant to, you know, kind of grow the company and grow this space. I saw BitInstant as this company that I like was like my baby, right? And so Eric was like the first professional person to come in and grow this company with me and was really involved in every aspect of Bitcoin going back from those years. He ended up running the the some of the most profitable and largest companies, including Shapeshift, Satoshi Dice, Coinapult, has met some amazing people along the way. And I'm was so honored and so excited to have done this episode. Eric Voorhees, the CEO of Shapeshift right now, and we'll be doing some amazing things talking about in the future. Enjoy the Untold Stories. Talk to you guys right after the ads. I'm so honored that Untold Stories is sponsored by eToro. eToro is the smartest crypto trading platform and one of the largest in the world with over a trillion dollars in trading volume per year. What I really love about eToro is that the CEO has been around the Bitcoin space since 2012, so they really, really put their money where their mouths are. U.S. customers, myself included, we can trade the most popular crypto assets, in fact, almost all of the ones that you want to trade, with low but transparent fees, so you actually know what you're paying for everything. And that's really, really, really important. So if you're not ready to trade yet, you can practice building your portfolio with the eToro $100,000 virtual trading feature. So you can create this whole portfolio without trading with any real money to see how you'll do. And you can learn all the different ins and outs without using any real money yet. And then once you're comfortable, you can enter the market and start buying and selling crypto for real. Best of all, one of my favorite features is that you can connect with 11 million other eToro traders in the world, myself included. And we can talk trading, charts, and all things crypto. So listen, head on over to eToro.com. Links are in the show notes and build your crypto portfolio the smart way. I want to thank and give credit to the first ever sponsor of Untold Stories, Scott Offer. Scott is a Bitcoin mining consultant, and I really want you guys to check out one of his coolest apps that's free to use. It's a Bitcoin mining profitability calculator that you can check it out before you get involved in mining, or if you just want to learn more about whether mining is profitable and how it works. The website is CryptoMining.Tools. That's CryptoMining.Tools. You can enter your estimated uptime and get more realistic profit projections. It includes really cool features like the impact of the Bitcoin block reward having, which is actually coming up extremely soon. Their API allows you to embed profitability calculators and other live data directly into your own website, all for free. Also, if you're wondering which miner is the most efficient or has the best chance of breaking even, you should try out their interactive hardware comparison chart. So it's a hardware comparison chart. So you can compare all different types of miners for all different coins and tokens. And it's interactive. So you can play around with it. It's by far the best tool if you have any questions about mining or if you want to learn more about mining. It's the best tool you can check it out. As a mining consultant, Scott helps you make data-backed business decisions. He will be involved in the process if you want to buy a miner, if you want to sell a miner, if you have miners and need to get into data centers. I mean, if you follow Scott on Twitter, even if you're not in the mining industry, you learn so much. I follow him. It's super cool. You can check it out on Twitter or Telegram at Offered Scott. That's O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. That's O-F-F-O-R-D. S-C-O-T-T. Again, I want to give a special thanks to Scott. You are my first sponsor when the show is just launching. Thank you so much. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. 
few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Over the course of our lives, um, we go through various ideologies. We go through thoughts, ideas. You know, a lot of us are raised with certain ideas and beliefs, um, or we see things on the news. We get influenced by books. You, you know what I'm talking about. And then over the course of our lives, there are people that enter your lives that fundamentally change how you look at things. They introduce you to ask questions and they help you kind of formulate um, where you see um, how you see the world. One of those people is my my guest today, Eric Voorhees. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It is such a pleasure to be here, Charlie, and very good to talk to you. We have such a long history together, and um, I really don't know where to start, but I, I, I'm going to start at the beginning. Um, you know, you, you we, we, we tell the story a lot. You used to, to joke in the office um, that I was like a statist, and, <laughs> and to a point, I, it's true, I was in the sense that I guess I just didn't know better, and so I was raised in a very religious home that was all about like... Um, you know, hardcore being Republican and and literally, I don't know if I ever told you this, but every time there were city council, uh, gubernatorial um, for mayor, president, any type of elections, you know, my parents would get something in the mail from like the community organization telling us this is how this is who you need to vote for. And my parents, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles religiously would li- just go to the voting booth and mass and vote for those people without asking any questions. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I was kind of raised. And then, and then I met you um, through Roger and basically you, you not convinced me, but you, your thoughts and beliefs were so radically different than mine. Um, and not talking about Bitcoin. Cause again, this was more of um, Austrian economics, um, just, just human rights. Um, you're, you were so concrete. Like, of course, this is the way it is. Of course, this is the way it should be. That it made me have to take a step back and re-question things that I knew growing up. And so my, my first question to you is, who in your life or at what point in your life did that fundamentally change for you? Yeah, well, I think the word you're looking for is corrupted. I think we corrupted you, Charlie. We took <laughs> we took the naive young the naive young Charlie and we turned him into a cold hearted villain. Yeah. So uh, apologies for that. So apologize to my parents. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I never really had a um, a strong change like that. I kind of slid into my ideology. Uh, My my dad is a libertarian, although I, I see him kind of as a statist as well. But he he kind of raised me with a deep skepticism of governments generally. And I didn't really learn the the word libertarian until college, actually. So I, for a long time, thought I was a Republican, sort of socially liberal, fiscally conservative Republican, and uh, never really fit that well with me. And then when I learned that word libertarian, then I fell down, you know, that first rabbit hole. Um, probably got very extreme, sort of, as I started listening to Free Talk Live. And um, Free Talk Live is a a podcast that's been running for a long time. Um, based in New Hampshire, and I run they, ads on Free Talk Live for the show. Yeah, yeah, Free Talk Live is fantastic. I mean, they um, they basically just talk about all sorts of issues from a a, a sort of purely anti government, pro liberty perspective, and their their logical consistency on moral grounds was very striking to me. And what it meant was that if if I believed one thing and I was logical, then all these other things fell into place. And there, there just became this very clear structure of how the world can work on, a, on an ethical principle of respecting um, individual liberty. 
And so um, that's when I really became probably quite an extremist. And I've been uh, trying to influence everyone ever since. And then you found out about Bitcoin and then eventually the larger crypto space. Um, this was, uh, you got involved in what, like 2011, 2010? Yeah, May of, May of 2011. Um, and it was when I was in New Hampshire, um, which is where Free Talk Live was based. So I knew the, t the Free Talk Live guys by then. And it was one of the other free staters there that I, um, I was friends with on Facebook and he, he introduced me to, to Bitcoin. He's, he posted an article about it and I read that and that was really at the beginning. I want to talk about those early years because, um, majority of the guests on the show, um, got involved, you know, and, and I still consider these the early years, but I even consider like 2013, 2014 is, is the early years, but rarely do I, do I get to speak to very many people that got involved around the same time I did in 2011. And so um, I want to talk about that for a second because it kind of goes hand in hand with the, with the theme of the show um, here. And, you know, you brought up a good word, a skepticism. And so I think that if there were to be a word that combined everyone who got involved in Bitcoin, um, everyone, and I mean, I don't generally put, I don't categorize everyone together normally, but if you were to categorize every single person who got involved in um in Bitcoin from like 2010 to 2012, maybe or 2013, would you agree that the, the the common denominator for everyone is skepticism? No matter where you fell on the political spectrum, you got involved because you were skeptic of how the world and how governments operated, um, at, especially during those years, which was like the post kind of a great recession, as they as they call it. Yeah, and I think it's even more targeted than that. I think it, it's a a skepticism of central banking and a skepticism of how the financial system worked for anyone who was involved in sort of 2010 through 2012. Uh, they shared that opinion. I think probably 99% of all Bitcoiners back then were deeply skeptical of central banking uh, and how the financial system operated in the world. Obviously it was only a, a two, three, four years after the, financial crisis. So that was all deep in everyone's minds. Um, and, you know, indeed, Satoshi's uh, infamous quote from the, the Genesis block, the Guardian newspaper article, um, you know, all that kind of stuff really tied together to create a cohesive group. There was a there was a quote. Um, so you and I were at this event in 2012, I think it was, or it was in Nashua, New Hampshire. Um, Freedom, yeah, freedom, Lib Liberty, well, Liberty, Liberty Forum or Liberty Forum. That's what yeah. it was. Roger was there. You were there. I was there. Ira. In fact, I interviewed Jeffrey Tucker. And just as a joke, I asked him, do you remember your first Bitcoin experience? And do you remember that story where me, you, him, Gabe were in a bar and, and yeah. Gabe like four? He remembered <laughs> that story like verbatim. Yeah. He remembered it was a great day. Well, um, we, we basically forced him to sit down with us and talk about Bitcoin because he he was <laughs> someone I looked up to and one of the most eloquent speakers on on liberty. And I was like, this this man has to know about Bitcoin. I mean, he this has to be a thing for him. And so we basically just forced him to talk to us. And by the end of it, uh, I think we got him. Those were the gorilla days. So um, there was a famous quote that I remember. Um, I think it was Josh Harvey who said it and he was talking about Bitcoin to someone in the in the exhibitor hall. And this is one of those like moments that you kind of remember there. Were, he, there was um, and actually, I think this quote was caught on one of the documentaries kind of like offhand where you could hear him saying it. But he said to someone who was describing Bitcoin and he found, he actually him and his brother founded the first Bitcoin ATM, the Limassol machines. But he said, we don't want to end the Fed. We want to transcend the Fed. <laughs> yeah, great bumper sticker. Yeah. So I remember he, he kind of said that, and, and that was a very big um, thing for me because I don't really believe in violence and kind of the whole end the Fed anarchist. It has a lot of like violent implications. And so when he said that, you know, I was like, okay, he, he's right. You, you essentially build a better system and people will voluntarily, you know, this was Roger's whole thing was voluntarism and for many years, that's what he said he was, or maybe he still says he is that. Um, people voluntarily use this better system because the competition's good. 
do you think we're still on that course? I mean, like almost Eric, it's almost like a decade later since that event. Like we're getting old. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm turning 30 next month. Oh yeah. You're super, <laughs> you're super old. Are, are you pulling in your social security checks yet? No, but I did join AARP. <laughs> oh Jesus. No, seriously. I did. Cause there's, there are, there are good discounts for like flights and car. Yeah. I accidentally ended up on, um, on Medicare because I was filling out an no, <laughs> yeah, I was, no. I was uh, back a couple of years ago when I was like forced to get health insurance. Uh, I was filling out some form to like figure out what a good provider would be, and um, at the time I wasn't making any salary. I, I was running Shapeshift, but taking no salary from it, so my income was zero. Obviously, I had plenty of money from crypto, but on paper, like according to the form, I looked poor. <laughs> um, I had, I had no mortgage. You know, like, I just, I looked like a poor person on paper and, below the poverty and so they sent me a, a Medicare card and I actually had Medicare insurance oh, for awesome. a while. So that, <laughs> that didn't uh, improve my opinion of the government, but, um, so yeah, your point about transcending the fed, I, like the, one of the things that was so cool about Bitcoin is that when, uh, when I was living in Dubai, it was during the financial crisis, and um, I started really studying how money and banking worked, and it really Eric, felt... we we lost you when you were saying that you were filling out the form. There's like a a forty second gap. Ah, Can crap. you start again with it? Yeah. No, no, it's all good. I save all the recordings are saved. So you were saying, so so you were saying, uh, and then take a pause, like just to, for for editing purposes. But you said I was filling out the form, and I you know kind of lived below the poverty line. Yeah, so I mm -hmm. filled out the form and um, basically it told me I was a poor person because I didn't have any salary, I didn't have a mortgage, uh, and um, so I got I got Medicare just accidentally. Um, so, regardless, one of the one of the cool parts about Bitcoin was that um, it really demonstrated an alternative to the financial system instead of just complaining about how money worked, how banking worked. Uh, and about you know the, the central banks and the Fed, and th and thinking about how impossible it would actually be to change that from the inside or to to vote the Fed away. Um, no one cares about that issue really, and you're never going to convince a majority of people to ever get rid of the Fed. So what do you do? You're kind of stuck with this horrible, corrupt system. But then Bitcoin comes along and it basically says, well, actually, here's an alternative to the entire thing. Here's something you can just step around the fed and uh and transcend it so that's what that's what crypto represents it represents a, a way to just move out of that whole system you say that that's what crypto represents and i want to note the use of the word crypto and not the word bitcoin if i were to change what you were to say um i would say that's what bitcoin represented and i guess my question if i want to expound on on it further are we still on that course? Like, is that what Bitcoin is doing? Are we even allowed? Can we even say like, this is what Bitcoin is or Bitcoin should be? But like, now we go from Bitcoin and there's just, we're living in this crypto world. And, and I de I'm definitely someone who's financially gained heavily from that as, as well as you and, and most other people. But I guess going back to like Bitcoin specifically, has that been lost or is that still the goal of people? Um, well, it's important to understand that the the industry and the community around this stuff is just much bigger now and rightly so. So while it started with, you know, very extremist types of people, it's grown and become more mainstream. It's not mainstream yet, but it's become more mainstream. And so with that, uh, some of the messaging gets diluted and that's okay. I mean, that allows it to become uh, widely used. I don't particularly care if everyone in Bitcoin wants to abolish the Federal Reserve. I know how Bitcoin works and I know it's going to take over the world. And I know that when it does, the Federal Reserve is going to go away. So it doesn't really matter um, what the majority of people using Bitcoin think or care about because the technology at a fundamental level leads down that path. Um, and this is why I'm always fine with companies uh, that help mainstream adoption, that help grow this. Because if you grow Bitcoin like, like a like a virus, uh, it takes over the world and it will replace a lot of these systems, even without the intention of many of the participants. You could even make the case that all these other, you know, alternatives to Bitcoin or altcoins, which is not a dirty word and no one should think it is, but you could 
make the case that that all of crypto is kind of like the the first step or the 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 gateway drug to, to bitcoin if you will yeah although i don't think that all paths lead to bitcoin i i see really yeah definitely not um I think that the financial system of the world is getting rewritten onto decentralized protocols. Um, Bitcoin is by far the biggest and most important, but there will be others. And most secure. For sure. Yeah. Um, it has a lot of the check marks of like best at this, best at that, but it's not best at everything, nor can it be. And if you tried to optimize Bitcoin for certain things, you'd detract from other, other attributes. Uh, so I see a world with with a number of blockchains. You know, I don't know that there will be a million blockchains, but there there will be many, and there will be millions of digital assets on top of these blockchains. Um, some of these will be intended and used as money and currency. Some of these will be intended and used for various other financial instruments, and some of these things will be used in in non financial ways as well. Um, but that whole system is getting rebuilt on decentralized protocols. And Bitcoin is at the core of it, but it is not the sum total of what's what's useful or interesting. In 2000, in 2013, um, in 2012, you joined uh, BitInstant, the company that that um, that I founded with Gareth, and you were the um, the director of marketing. But really, you were like the COO, probably um, running the company with me. And we had we had a lot of fun, and um, we did. We had so much fun. We. <laughs> We had, they were good, good times, Charlie. Good times, and actually, so Alex and Ian from EVR were just here yesterday. Um, for those listeners, EVR was the, was the nightclub that accepted Bitcoin. My two friends had started, and this was, I mean, this was like 2012, I think 2013, and that you know those were kind of like the not the battlegrounds, but they were, they were the playground of of of, of Bitcoin back then. Um, but then you you um, during those years. You had got involved with 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 Satoshi Dice, ended up running that, and and then eventually some other some other companies. But before I want to talk about Satoshi Dice for a second. Satoshi Dice, I would say there was a lot of like gaming going on, but Satoshi Dice really was was the first one that kind of pushed the limits of stress testing the Bitcoin blockchain. And, and, and I don't know if you remember, but you got a lot of flack from from people. In fact. Uh, Luke Deshira would famously say that you were spamming the network, which opened up the questions to, you know, what's considered spam. And 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 my my I had a recent episode, and you should listen to it. Samson Mao was on this show, and it was a great episode. But we kind of butt heads a little bit on the show, which I'm not afraid to do on the show, because um, I think he kind of agreed that 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 was spam, and that he's allowed to say what sh- Blockstream is allowed to say what is spam and what isn't spam do you, do you remember that you're laughing yeah <laughs> yeah that whole thing was so ridiculous um so yeah i mean if you look back at the and i think blockchain.com blockchain.info has a, a good graph of this but it's a uh, transaction count per day over time you know going way back into the beginning of bitcoin and after the 2011 bubble, um, Bitcoin transactions per day falls and it looks really anemic and it's just kind of like slowly dwindling uh, and, and kind of flatlining for for months. Um, and then April 2012 comes along and there is a, a spike in the transaction count. And from then on, for the next years, um, Bitcoin transactions grow basically every every year. And you can just see the, the clear change in the trajectory of the usage of Bitcoin. Um, April 2012 was the month that Satoshi Dice launched, and those transactions were Satoshi Dice. From from 2012 through 2014, uh, or maybe just 2013, but two years, uh, Satoshi Dice was half of all the Bitcoin transactions in the world. And um, now there weren't very many Bitcoin transactions in the world back then, so there's far more now. It would not be half of them now. But there were people that, that hated that. They're like, you're clogging up the network and you're using it. And and I just, I saw that as just so preposterous. Like, my goal has always been that this stuff gets used, that Bitcoin's actually used, that it takes over the world because people are using it, not because it sits in some academic paper as this 
potential thing that might save us, but that it actually is saving us because it's getting used. You were stress so, testing the network. You were you you were, you were making people uncomfortable. No, I, I wasn't even stress testing the network. I was building a service that people found useful, and I was paying mining fees for the for the right to make transactions on the blockchain, which is the entire the entire point of it. Um, Satoshi Dice was the majority funder of miners in terms of mining fees um, back in those days as well. Uh, I doubt Samson Mao ever acknowledges that. Um, but the whole premise that usage of Bitcoin harms Bitcoin is very, very weird and very, I think, antithetical to, to what I believe. I think anyone that wants to use the Bitcoin blockchain uh, is able to do it. They need to pay the fees to get their transactions in the blocks. And if they're doing that, it doesn't really matter at all what they're using it for. That's the whole point. eToro is crypto trading made easy. It's one of the largest and smartest trading platforms in the world with extraordinarily low and transparent fees. Join myself and 11 million other traders and create an account at eToro.com. Links in the show notes and build your crypto portfolio the smart way. I'd like to thank my sponsor of Untold Stories, Scott Offord. Scott is a Bitcoin mining consultant and provides managed miner hosting services in Texas. If you need to get at least 25 megawatts of miners online in the next three months, Scott wants to talk with you right now. Contact him on Telegram or Twitter at O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. He's offering an all-in rate of 6.5 cents per kilowatt an hour. Wow, that's like... Super cheap. That's like electricity cost in the Arctic where things are automatically cooled because it's so cold. So he's offering 6.5 cents per kilowatt an hour without any CapEx required. Or if you commit to $170,000 per megawatt up front, he can get you a rate of 5 cents per kilowatt. Am I reading that right? 5 cents per kilowatt? That's unbelievable. Scott can get your first 25 megawatt hashing within 16 weeks from the date of signing. All the infrastructure, power lines, substations, water lines, and buildings are fully owned by the hosting company. By the end of March 2020, they will already have 150 megawatts online in Texas. This is such a super cool ad to record because my listeners are learning about mining now. Like this is this is really interesting. I, I didn't even know half this half this stuff before I met Scott and he started sponsoring the show. So make sure you check out Scott on Telegram and Twitter at O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. And Scott, thank you again for being my first ever Untold Story sponsor. What happened and what type of feedback did you get and what type of flack did you get from people um, in, in during during those times? Um, other than a few crazies who, who were mad at me for spamming the blockchain. Um, most people that used it le- really liked the service. I mean, some people don't like gambling as a thing. And so they had a, ethical problems with that. But, uh, but most people thought the service was great. And the, the reason the whole thing was cool was because it used the power of cryptography to prove that the odds were what we said they were. So it, it brought transparency to an industry that is notoriously opaque and when people go in the gamble, you know, in Vegas or wherever, you're never told what the odds of a game are, first of all. And even if you were, you wouldn't know that that was being, that that was truthful. You, you wouldn't have any way to validate it. Um, and yet people play and gamble without knowing what the odds are or, or whether they're being honest. So Satoshi Dice comes along, tells you exactly what the odds are on the various bets. And then you can mathematically prove that the results of each bet are correct based on Pro- those probably odds. fair you hear that term a lot but how probably does that work fair. exactly without getting too technical uh so the way it works at least with um with satoshi dice is that a list of secrets like one secret per day into the future was released and or a hash of the secret um and then the the secret itself each day was used in the uh so in the role just of a the random dice. string of numbers and letters okay yeah um, and so basically the result of any bet had several inputs, uh, one of which was like the transaction hash of the, of the Bitcoin in, which randomized it. And another was uh, this, this um, preset secret. And then the day after any bet, um, the secret would be revealed of the prior day. And from that, plus the transaction hash of the Anyone Bitcoin Anyone can validate and check. You could always validate that, that the transactions that happened a day or longer ago were all 
uh, were all cryptograph cryptographically true and fair. And this was so cool because um, people didn't need to know who I was. They didn't need to know Satoshi Dice at all. They didn't need to trust anyone. They only needed to tr trust the, the mathematics behind it. And that really, I think, highlighted the power of this technology and the fact that you could use it from anywhere in the world, no account needed, um, no questions asked, anyone in the world, any human has equal right and equal access to this technology. Um, it just became a very pronounced uh, symbol of what of what Bitcoin stood for. And, you know, to this day remains something that I'm incredibly proud to have there been was, involved um... in. Um, most people think that like the ICOs, you know, that whole term started in 2016 or 2017. But um, you remember and I remember that there was um, I forgot what it was called, but it was the the, the crypto stock market or something. Bitcoin Ampex. Ampex. Yes. And you could. It, well, there were several of them. Yeah. GBTC, Funder, not GBTC, but it, it was um, the guy from Romania. I, I'm, I'm forgetting his name. Mir yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, although it's not correct to call those ICOs because the, none of it was tokenized. So those early crypto stock exchanges were, um, you were buying shares of the companies. So I sold shares of Satoshi Dice, uh, specifically shares, uh, profit sharing shares. So basically the site would earn profits and people would be paid out based on the shares they held. Um, as, but they weren't tokenized. So uh, so it was a little different in that sense. How were um, they securitized? Secured. Well, they were just internal database entries in these various exchanges. So MPEX was just an internal exchange where it would create an asset internally. There was no blockchain involved. Yeah. And then but I guess would... how is the connection between the MPEX database entry and the actual, you know, ownership of that securitized? There was no company like Satoshi Dice LLC or correct. How was Satoshi Dice was never a company. Okay. Um, but because all of the bets were public, people could see uh, and verify actually how much money the site was making. So basically, all I did was once a month, um, I would sum up, you know, sometimes the site would lose money, but you, most months it would make money. And I would take, uh, you know, 10% of the uh, money it made and pay it out to the 10% holders um, on uh, MPEX. So they'd get paid in Bitcoin for the shares they held. Um, and that's, it was really no, no more complicated than that. Eventually you got in trouble, a little bit of trouble for, for doing this, but, but no one really lost money. What were the main problems? Yeah. Well, Satoshi Dice made a lot of money. And so people that, uh, invested in it, um, on average earned something like, like an 80% return in Bitcoin or, you know, 1.8 X in Bitcoin over nine months and something like 9x in dollar terms over that period of time. So people were even making money in Bitcoin terms, even though Bitcoin was skyrocketing during that period. Um, so yeah, it was it was a great success commercially. It was, it was awesome. Um, of course, the SEC doesn't care about whether you actually build businesses that make money. They were upset that I didn't get their permission to sell those shares. So the SEC came after me uh, in mid 2013, and um, I had to deal with them for the next nine that months. That was fun, adult, you know. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that 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 sucked. I mean, that. <laughs> well, it is what it is, and what it is is not okay. Um, basically, they stole a bunch of money from me for building a service that made money and and paid out correctly to the people that had invested. Uh, it was, it was a success in all but manners, a, and yet this government agency comes after me and takes my money. You needed to be it. a deterrent. That's that's what it was. They needed to like stop you, or like punish you to prevent someone else from doing it. And yeah, he heaven forbid a whole bunch of people around the world build successful businesses. Can't let that happen. Well, so you, you didn't let it put you down, and you ended up starting a, an extremely extremely successful company, um, Shapeshift. Um, you know, and which I guess the best, the best form of flattery is when someone copies you. And now there are tons of copies of Shapeshift, but you were the first and you got a lot of flack for that basically because Eric, <laughs> sitting, so sitting yep. from the sidelines, um, which I had to do for a while, you were probably still are, but you were like the poster boy for Bitcoinism, right? But that fundamental Austrian economic libertarian bitcoin is it and you were that like 
person that that people would quote you, you know, and and um, when you launch Shapeshift, that was a big slap in the face for some people, because here you are now supporting other coins and tokens. Yeah, he- heaven forbid there are other technologies that are interesting. No, but in that's your right. People were like, you have you, you can't have your cake and eat yeah. it too, as I tell other people. You, you you love Eric for his for his capitalism, for his free market, laissez faire, but then when he does something that is laissez faire and free market, you get angry at him. How does that make any sense? <laughs> so it makes sense if you understand tribalism. And when I so when I was first into Bitcoin, um, one of the things that really struck me was it was very difficult to convince normal libertarians who are generally gold bugs um, that this was a useful new thing that they should pay attention to. Um, gold bugs generally called it a scam, called it worthless, called it not backed by anything. They still are, um, by and the they way. Hate it. They, right, but there are many fewer of them now. Back then, like 99% of libertarians were gold bugs and were anti-Bitcoin. It was crazy. Like in, tw- in 2011 and maybe early 2012, I'm, I'm saying. Um, and especially a microcosm of that was in the Free State Project. Um, and those were mostly younger people. And even there, there was deep skepticism of, of Bitcoin. And a large part of it was because all of them owned gold. All of them owned gold and silver. And that, that was the bags they were holding. That was their tribe. That's what they associated as money. And so they they had a deep distrust of Bitcoin um, to the point of calling it a scam, even though Bitcoin represented the most amazing uh, new technology to change how money worked and to pull power away from the Federal Reserve and all that. Um, and I don't think it, this was a conscious thing of these people. Like, I don't think they were like, oh, well, I want gold to go up. So Bitcoin's bad. But but deep down, that's that's what was happening. They had invested in this thing called gold. Bitcoin competes with gold in their mind. And so they, they saw it as an enemy. And that was really disheartening. And it took a long time and a lot of discussions with those people to to get them to realize that Bitcoin was useful and, and valid. Um, and then fast forward a couple of years and a lot of these people are into Bitcoin. Now they, now they own Bitcoin. And then what comes out? Well, other cryptocurrencies. And many of them, and, and I can say this because I was one of these people at first, really hated these other cryptocurrencies because they felt threatened by it. Um, they felt that... What made you change? Um, partly just being aware and mature as a person, um, but also recognizing that the principle that was so important about Bitcoin is one of the principles is decentralization um, and open markets and competition. Like that, that is the, at the core of what Bitcoin represents. And a world in which there's only one blockchain and only one cryptocurrency is less decentralized, is more homogenous, uh, and is less dynamic than one in which there are multiple blockchains, multiple digital assets, some of which compete with each other, some of which complement each other, uh, some of which have different ethoses, different development teams. That is a more decentralized world. And frankly, I think that the principles of Bitcoin are best expressed in a world in which there are many different digital assets. And that just became very obvious to me in the same way that Bitcoin itself as a valuable asset was obvious to me when I learned about that. Um, and so I, I broke out of that tribalism and I, I no longer thought that Bitcoin was the only valuable digital asset. Uh, and so when I started Shapeshift, it was really... Yeah, it was really disheartening to see how much hatred came after me um, from the people who I felt like were my friends and were my tribe. Uh, you know, I I was at that point fairly well known in the Bitcoin community. And so many of those people turned on me because suddenly I was saying, I, I wasn't saying anything different about Bitcoin. I still think it's the most amazing invention ever and is taking over the world. Um, the majority of my crypto holdings by far is still in Bitcoin and always has been. And I've continued to speak about the virtues of it. And yet to that, I also add the point that other cryptos are interesting. Other blockchains can be valuable. Um, And for that, got just an an unending amount of hatred from people who were stuck in that tribalist mentality. Uh, And so that's been really, really shitty, frankly. And, you know, I, uh, it's been hard to, hard to cope with, but I'm, I'm getting over it. 
did you ever take a step back and ask yourself why you're even still in this industry if if people were just so mean to you about no, this? No, I never were no, I I've never been into this for I, I did. <laughs> I think and a lot of people left. A lot of our yeah. friends that like Jared Kenna, you know, they just don't come back. They they get they get disheartened, yeah. they get pissed off, they get burned out. Yeah, I my goal here is to change the financial system of the world and I have had that as my goal since the very beginning. Um so crypto as an industry is growing in popularity, is it growing in maturity and growing in power. And to the extent that that continues to happen, I'm happy. So the, you know, the interpersonal drama and the, the, the spats and the tribalism, like that's all, that, that's all nonsense compared to like what we're actually trying to do here. Um, it, it doesn't matter like if people are being mean to each other on Twitter ultimately, what matters is that this technology is taking over the world and we're part of something really special. So I, I stay focused on that. All of crypto exists on a, on a spectrum, right? Like, so like you said before, you know, Bitcoin definitely hits all the check marks and, but it doesn't hit all of them. And I would go further and say that, you know, Bitcoin and, and, and everything that calls itself a cryptocurrency is on a spectrum. And you have like all the way on the right is you're looking at like, full decentralization and full security and full immutability and just all the, you know, and Bitcoin is, is on that path, right? It's, it's the direction is moving forward. Then you have some other things like Facebook Libra that are completely on the other side. It is, does not resemble a cryptocurrency whatsoever. D- disagree, I mean, there are some disagree, like but go on. Okay. I want to talk okay. to you about that in a second, but okay. And then you have some other ones that are like, teetering you know you have ethereum and you have some other ones that are just trying but they're running through issues but it's getting better and some of them like like ripple that are just i don't even want to talk about that like tron and some other things um but i i I guess what i'm trying to say is like there are a few gems right there are a few gems that are really you know at this point are are, can be taken over easily by a 51 percent attacks that are not secure enough to be to be holding any like large amounts of money but i feel like i feel like most of these coins today are just not even like on that path they're not even trying they're just not even close to being something that like you say down the road we could be living in a secure world with these chains and these blockchains i just feel like a lot of them aren't even like on that path yeah so importantly it needs to be said that most cryptocurrencies are total crap. Most blockchains are not going to go anywhere. <laughs> um, some or many of them are, are outright scams. Many more aren't scams, but they're just bad ideas or good ideas that were poorly implemented. There's a lot of crap out there, 100%. But it's not all crap other than Bitcoin. And this is where the maximalists get it wrong. They think that just because most other coins are bad, all other coins are but bad. But if we're not turning down the crap. it's just lazy thinking. No, but if we're not like being critical of the shit, then how do we expect it to be better? I guess it's well, the we should be critical of the. We should be critical of the shit. But when people just call every altcoin a shit coin. We're not being tone based on this show, you know. <laughs> not to call out any names. Yeah, when 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 Bitcoiners hate on Ethereum just because it's Ethereum, they're being they're being unfair. Ethereum is fascinating and amazing and a huge success, um, and it does things that Bitcoin can't do. But it's today, not immutable or can't can't do well. Well, in what in what sense? I mean, Bitcoin and Ethereum these these coins exist with various attributes, all of which exist on gradients. Bitcoin is not perfectly secure. That, that's my point. It is not, there, it is not perfectly immutable. It is not perfectly decentralized. It is probably the best of these coins on those attributes, but it's also more expensive to send a transaction on Bitcoin than on Ethereum. It also doesn't make a lot of sense to run smart contracts on Bitcoin versus Ethereum. So there are there are trade-offs here. And um, assuming that all these all these digital assets are only competing for one use case or one thing, uh, is really foolish and I think is lazy thinking. Bitcoin is stronger because Ethereum exists and Ethereum is stronger because Bitcoin exists. Um, and I wish that people in, in the crypto industry would be more open and more willing to realize that these technologies are beneficial to each other rather than purely competitive. And actually, 
most people that aren't Bitcoin maximalists do realize that. It's the Bitcoin maximalists that basically hate on everything else. And I'm pretty sick. No, and I agree with you. It's a very, very vocal, super minority that is very tribalistic and is very anti-everything. And what people don't realize, and and I'm not going to name names or companies, is that most of these people, if you dig deep enough, have an economic incentive to be um, tribalistic in the Bitcoin only sense of the word. So don't forget to always be looking at that. Yeah. And well, and what, what's sad, what's sad is that they don't realize that these other technologies help Bitcoin. Like, again, the vast majority of my crypto worth, crypto net worth is in Bitcoin. So is my economic interest in shitting on all the other coins just to the benefit of Bitcoin? I, I don't think so. But even if it was, if I did that be, purely because that's in my own economic interest, then I'm being disingenuous. And I think a lot of a lot of Bitcoin maximalists don't realize that they they rationalize their hatred of these other coins. They they're and they're smart. They they find reasons to hate them. They look at the bad things. They they accentuate the problems of these other things, and they um, they highlight the virtues of their own coin. And so they look through things through a very biased lens. All these cryptos have problems. Bitcoin has its own problems. Ethereum has its own problems. But a Bitcoin maximalist will dismiss the problems of Bitcoin and highlight the problems of Ethereum. And that's where they're getting intellectually lazy and disingenuous. To be fair, the maximalists of these other coins do the same things. Not to say that one is right or the other, but I feel like I entered the Bitcoin space to get away from the tribalism of the home I grew up in. And then (laughs) you you know exactly what I'm talking about. it's It's very, 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 very frustrating and and hate doesn't belong in any community um and what what i hate the most you know not to say that i hate but what what really frustrates me the most is when they use the excuse and 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 earlier you know my job here is to play devil's advocate but what i what i can't stand the most is when you know any maximalist from any coin or token will use the the rationale of i need to protect consumers from investing or losing money. Uh, yeah, some of them do that. Um, they start sounding a little bit like the SEC, don't they? That, exactly. Well, and what what really what really dismayed me was was during the so the ICO boom was was incredible in both the good and bad sense of that word. Um, it was an amazing demonstration of the power of this technology. Obviously, tons of people misused it, um, as you would expect. But the amount of maximalists who were basically cheering on the SEC for going after uh, token issuers was kind of disgusting. And fine, if the SEC is going after fraud, cool, I'm all for that. Go do that. But the, the, the desire that maximalists had for the SEC to shut down token markets generally or, or to label them all securities so that the SEC could control them was really, really sad. Uh, and really, I think goes against the very ethos of what Bitcoin is, is supposed to be. Well, to a point where they would say, like, if you even invested in any token, you're going to jail. Yeah, or, or <laughs> exactly. Or the, the amount of people who, who tried to argue, wanted to argue and wanted it to be true that Ethereum itself was a security. Because then it would fall under the SEC purview and because then that would put a, a huge wet blanket on the entire non-Bitcoin ecosystem. Um, that that was just really pathetic and something I didn't like seeing. Put me in the tribalisms, put me in a tribalistic or a maximalist shoes for a second. Is it selfish of me or is it completely, you know, hypocritical or me displaying, this, you know, cognitive dissonance to, to, to hate on Libra? Am I doing exactly what I can't send other people to do or am i allowed to put a line and say the buck stops here i'm not going to support something like facebook libra no so yeah i'm not saying that the people that are into this stuff should embrace all other coins again as i said most of them are crap um and any particular coin if you find fault with it and express that logically and convey it well, then, then fine. Libra has all sorts of problems and all sorts of concerns around it. And I can totally understand the people that 
that think it's a bad idea or a bad project. Um, that's fine. I mean, when, whenever someone will engage on a debate about the specific attributes of a certain coin or blockchain, they're already doing a better job of analyzing this stuff than than someone who just calls everything a shit coin on Twitter. Like, so, so there's a, a difference there that's important. Um, but yeah, let's let's talk about Libra for a second. Tell me what you think. So, I love Libra. And here's why. Um, it's not Bitcoin, first of all, which means it's not going to be censorship resistant. Um, and it is far more centralized, obviously, than, than Bitcoin is. Um, that said, it is a supranational currency. It is backed by a basket of fiat and bonds. And it is a new currency unit that is, in some ways, above any national currency that took balls, frankly, for Facebook to do. Um, I assumed that their cryptocurrency project would just be a one-to-one -one dollar proxy coin um, and would basically be no different than PayPal. But what they did was actually create a new currency backed by these other things um, that is independent in some ways of any specific national currency. That infuriated the regulators and the governments of the world. And that made me so very happy because what it did was it- I can it, imagine you sitting by a TV, like smiling, you know- Oh yeah, wa <laughs> watching watching the hearings. Um, yes. <laughs> poor David Marcus having to go and sit in front of those fools. He handled and it so well though. He he handled it all right. Uh, I, It's a pretty impossible position. I mean, yeah. all those politicians don't understand money whatsoever. They don't understand technology whatsoever. Most of them are morally corrupt and don't deserve to govern anyone. Your boy Chuck Schumer was all over that. <laughs> and they, they sit up there like grilling these brilliant people who are building interesting new things. And it's just it's just so, so shameful. But um, so the, the, the core reason that I like Libra is because it helps challenge the notion of that only governments can make money and that only a that money is something that comes from a central bank that comes from a government that has been the status quo forever and that's what everyone accepts bitcoin uh shot a huge arrow through that thesis and demonstrated that that's not true but bitcoin's still somewhat niche and is very weird uh, and a lot of people have a hard time grasping it libra is shooting a whole nother arrow through that thesis and is doing so in a way that the mainstream can more easily understand and get get on board with I think Libra, if it's actually able to launch, becomes a huge pull away from fiat and toward non-fiat. Now that means toward Libra, and it also means toward the, you know, quote unquote, real cryptocurrencies beyond that. Um, I think it's a huge bridge. I think it's very important for people to, to see that kind of thing happen. I think it challenges the authority that governments have over money. And for that reason, I love it. And I hope they I hope they are able to actually get it launched, um, although I'm skeptical that that will happen. If you were to ask, you know, if you were to take a survey, right, and you were to ask everyone you know, okay, actually, not everyone you know, because everyone you know probably knows about crypto already. But if you were to ask someone that you know's other, like, friend group or whatever, if you were to take a survey of everyone who's, like, just knows about crypto from what they read about the mainstream media, so completely normal people... Uh, you know, because we're all not not normal. But if you were to take a survey, right, and you were to say, if you had a choice, who would you rather issue a currency? Would it be the United States government? Or what if it was a consortium of a 100 of the top companies in the country that and most of those companies compete with each other? So there's no economic incentive for them to um for them to, you know, do things negatively like plan all together, um, who would you who would you agree with? And I, you know, I, I would venture to say that a, a large majority would say the companies over the government. I disagree. I think most you do. I think most normal people would still rather trust their money from the government. I did this survey on my Twitter, but obviously it's biased. <laughs> yeah, that, that might be a bit of a self-selection bias. But I, I don't know. I want to push back for a second with sure. you, Eric, because because. I, I think that we trust companies more than we trust our government. And I'll tell you why I think that. Let's take net neutrality, for example. Dude, the, our, these companies have been using our data for whatever they want for decades. 
Facebook use our data and we don't even care. We give it to them. Now, all of a sudden the government comes out and you're going to have the ability, you know, for 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 um, for the government to decide what type of data can be sent across um, Internet service providers. And we're all up in arms. But but we, we let the we let these companies use our data. Why do we care all of a sudden when it's government versus companies? We trust companies more than we trust governments. In some ways, people do trust companies more than government. Um, but at the same time, I feel like there is more uproar about privacy violations from Facebook than there is about the existence of the NSA. I think more people are bothered by the fact that Facebook knows what you just bought uh, at Walmart versus that the NSA can basically just take any of your emails from you without you even knowing. Um, it's hard to parse this out because it depends on the, on the specific thing that you're talking about, you know, and where people place their trust, but people have trusted governments with money, at least, in, and I'm talking to the U S here, have trusted governments with their money for so long that, that any, anyone not doing any company providing money would be seen as uh, seen with skepticism. What about consortiums of companies, not like a single company? And don't you think we're, you know, potentially seeing like a fundamental shift here? And I want to, I won't let you finish your point, but I do want to throw the word out of, of incentive for a second, but finish your point. Yeah. I, I just think that most people still believe the government helps and the government um, looks out for people that their interest is in helping people. And yes, they get it wrong sometimes, but that's what their interest is. And they see corporations as like profit seeking. Um, I think that's kind of the, the general sentiment of the average normal American. Uh, it shouldn't be that way. I would always rather trust a private company than a government, but I'm, I'm an extremist for that view. Um, that's, not, that's not a mainstream view. I don't think you're an extremist. I think you're just ahead of the pot. Well, sure, that that makes it sound nicer, but I'm definitely an extremist. <laughs> I mean, I, I would abolish pretty much every government organization I could. So, so I don't know what's more extreme than that. Let's take the word incentive for a second. Um, and this is I kind of where my thinking is: um, someone should invent like a you know a, a different socioeconomic you know class for me, and I call it incentivism. And I say to myself, who has the the most incentive or economic incentive um, to do right by me. So governments may may have used to have that incentive, if not economic, but just well, economic, because we pay taxes, we have faith and trust in the government. And it used to be that you'd have revolutions, or you'd have, um, you know, the ability for 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 governments to not that I'm advocating for that, but people would try to replace our governments, or they least go on the streets and, and argue and protest like they're doing in Hong Kong now. So governments have to be a lot more careful and be responsible. But but we don't really care anymore, at least in the West, right? Um, then you go for companies. Companies have an incentive to do right by our data, at least, you know, at least in theory. And, we, you know, I guess that's I'm arguing against myself because there was the whole Facebook data misuse with the Hillary Clinton campaign or whatever. But in theory, you know, companies have to use our data the right way possible because there's an economic incentive. If, if they do harm by us, then we just won't use those companies anymore. Well, this is an important point is that any company I can just stop using. Like if I don't like what Facebook's doing, I just don't use Facebook. If I don't like what the U S government's doing, I'm, I'm stuck. They're still going to steal half my income every year. They're still going <laughs> to tell me what I can put into my body. They're still going to tell me all sorts of rules and restrictions, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pages of regulations across every aspect of the economy, they mandate and coerce my life. And I can't escape that. I can always leave Facebook. So I, I don't even see the threats on, on the same level. And yet a lot of people see Facebook's issues as just as egregious or, or more than, than the government. And they say, well, I, I have to use Facebook. And so they're using my data and that's not fair. No, you don't have to use Facebook. You want to use Facebook. You don't want to pay for it. So yeah, Facebook's going to figure out other ways to make money on, on your interactions. But you can absolutely stop using it. There, you don't have to do it. Um, and a lot of people live without Facebook and it's totally fine. So if you don't like Facebook, stop being their customer. But you don't have that ability when it comes to governments. Or do we? We, we don't. <laughs> We don't. <laughs> I want to tell you a funny story, actually. Um, so basically, so 
So my not my non crypto. I have I have two business cards. I have my crypto business card and I have my my non crypto business card. Um, my crypto my non crypto business card here in, in Florida. I, I get I dabble in real estate and, and stuff like that. And so there's so there's a, there's a property um, in a historic district that I that I'd like to purchase. Um, and I'd like to purchase it and renovate it and then rent it out. Um, I've been doing this for the past few years. Now that the property sits on a street, and the street has been vacated by the city for like twenty years. What that means is the city hasn't actually given up the street. Like you, the street hasn't been privatized. Like so, you can do that if 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 you if there's a long winding road and that road just goes to your house. You can petition the city to 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 give you ownership mm-hmm. of that street, which means that you have to build the roads, right? Yep. Maintain that street. Um, and and that's what I wanted to do here. I wanted to take the the the, the little lane. It was a tiny lane, probably no more than than thirty feet, and the city. The, the lane was going directly like through the property and I wanted to basically petition the city to, to drop the lane and, and, you know, I would sign guarantees that I would maintain it and everything, but the lane also led to another house. Um, and I went to the person and I said, Hey, um, would you, you know, would you support me if I get the city and I sign a document saying that I will, you know, I'll put money in escrow to basically fund the, the, the make sure this road stays, you know, goes from from the street to your home for for your whole, for life. You know, I'll I'll maintain this street better than the city would ever do. And you can see the city actually hasn't even maintained the street because it's literally just a a, a dirt path. Would you support me? And she said to me, she said, "But who will build the roads, Charlie? <laughs> did, who did will she build actually the roads?" She said it in not those <laughs> words verbatim, but that's what it was. So she didn't support me, and I ended up not buying the property. Yeah, well, people people trust the government to do a lot of things for them, sadly. Uh, and they seem to want to trust the government to do more and more. This is why the government grows every single year. It, it never shrinks. It doesn't matter which party is elected. The government never, ever shrinks. It has never decreased in size by even 1%, with the exception of immediately after World War II. But it hasn't increased really either. It's, it's pretty much stayed the same for like almost ever. That's not true. Every year it spends more and more and more money. Oh, I meant like the amount of civil servants that work for the guy. I think it's like 1.2 million people work for the government. That really hasn't changed much. Uh, well, I read that. I read that I yesterday. Measure, yeah, I measure it in terms of how many resources the government is consuming or spending or, quote unquote, investing, if you actually think that that's what they're doing. Uh, <laughs> it always it always grows. Um, so that's that's been <laughs> And, and I don't know where that ends. I mean, it can't end in anything other than a debt default because it doesn't have the money to be spending like this. So it, it continues to borrow and borrow and pay interest on that debt. And th- that doesn't, no politician is ever going to get elected who, who wants to cut back on spending. So, so that'll, that'll proceed until some kind of horrible bond disaster. Speaking of which, what do you think of, of, uh, of Andrew Yang? Um, I don't know him very well. Other than well, that, he plans, other than that, know. he advocates for a universal basic income. Yes. So, so I immediately dismiss him on that grounds. Um, but okay, but isn't UBI like a somewhat of a libertarian idea? <laughs> Ta- taxing people and then <laughs> and then giving money to everyone through the government. That, that doesn't sound like a libertarian idea. It's okay. So, so completely redistributing wealth and what he wants to do, completely, completely dismissing him. Because I've had some some libertarians on this show who say that some of his ideas are good, and I'm and I'm more for my own curiosity. And, well, what, and what no, ideas? I don't, I don't. I can't vote. I'm a felon. But <laughs> the reason, I, and that's by the way, it's the best excuse. It's the best way to avoid like any confrontation. Come come political, like come like election time. I can walk into a bar and not get worried because people get like all like political and you know like charged and Facebook and everything, and I'm like, oh. I'm a felon. And then when people voted in Florida to give me my rights back this, this past election, I was angry. I don't want the rights back. It's the Why do you need excuse. an excuse not to vote? It's just more for like, a, like, a, it's like a, it's like a showstopper. No one can really argue with you. When yeah, you, that's you fair. Say that. Okay. So what's a good idea from Andrew Yang? I don't know. I don't follow. I don't really don't get involved in the specifics of the politics. I was just, I guess anyone who comes out and has such a fundamental, you know, different approach to how our Does government he have a different approach? work. I'm interested in, yeah, the freedom dividend. The freedom Has that been dividend? really like, is that the, um, that's what he calls it. That's what he calls it. The God. You didn't know this? 
So I'm like, I'm interested from more of like a, just um, a, a, not a scientific, but from a from a, 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 a an academic perspective. I'm interested in in if his ideas can work, which I don't think they can. But I just like studying shit I, that I, I don't guess understand. I, don't even I, just, guess. I don't even see a universal basic income as a a radical change. I mean, all politicians like to give people money because that gets them votes. So Andrew Yang just wants to give more people more money. That doesn't seem like a radical change. That just seems like he's more politician than some of the politicians that came before him. Very interesting that you would say that because a lot of his followers and a lot of people that have become part of the Yang gang have advocated completely separate. I may even take this part out of the show just because I don't, it doesn't really belong. I'm just curious actually, but, but you gave me your answer. So, 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 so Reed, if you're listening, when you edit the show, I don't know if this belongs. You decide. Well, if it stays in the show, anyone who supports Andrew Yang, (laughs) hit me up on Twitter and let me know why. Cause I I really don't know much, but the only (laughs) thing I know about him at this point is that he supports giving free money to everyone, which sounds exactly like what every politician tries to do. It's just, it's just the emperor's new clothes, I guess. Right. Um, well, Eric, thank you for your, for your time for the hour. Um, what can people do to follow you and your um, your doings, doings and your happenings? Yeah, well, tw- tw- Twitter's <laughs> Twitter's always great uh, <laughs> at Eric Voorhees. Eric is spelled with a K. Um, and then obviously, that you know, like most of my time goes to building Shapeshift. We are trying to build a, a self custody uh, crypto marketplace where people can interact with their crypto in all the ways they want to, but without having to trust a third party to do it. So um, if that sounds interesting to you, uh, shapeshift.com is our new platform and uh, we'd love to have you there. That's what I wanted to tell you. Thank you for launching. I love your, your, the Trezor dashboard that you have now that you've, so, so for, for the listeners, essentially, if you're used to using like my ether wallet or wallet.trezor or any of you, you know, the, the built-in UIs that come with any hardware wallet that you use, keep key, try Shapeshift's platform. It works seamlessly and it's, it's really much nicer to look at and easier. Yeah. And just yesterday we, we enabled its usage without an account at all. So other, other than trading, you can use the whole shapeshift platform without an account, no email even. Um, So yeah, for, for anyone that has a treasure or a keep key, it's, it's probably the best interface you can use for the management of your crypto. And uh, we'll be adding ledger support later this year. I'm excited. Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Really good to talk to you, Charlie. Thank you again for listening to such an amazing episode of Untold Stories. And thank you for listening to hear more about my sponsors, including Scott Offord. Scott is a broker of ASIC Mining Gear, and he provides large-scale managed miner hosting services. Basically, he helps you with buying and selling your miners or getting your miners up and hashing. Scott is on the board of directors for the nonprofit organization called Blockchain and Crypto Mining Association, or the BCMA. They provide networking opportunities and ongoing education for professionals and hobby miners alike. Scott and the BCMA will be sponsoring the Mining Disrupt Conference in Miami in July 2020. That actually sounds like something I should go to because I live only a few hours away. It's an event like no other created by miners for miners. I'm not a miner, but maybe I still will go check it out. All the mining equipment manufacturers and solution providers will be exhibiting there like they were last year. The networking opportunities are phenomenal. To learn more about Blockchain and Crypto Mining Association or the Mining Disrupt Conference, contact Scott on Telegram or Twitter at O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. That's O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. New episodes go live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. EST. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter, Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. See you next week.